even simple tasks like trying to count something is really hard on the Twitter data. Are you missing out on meaningful relationships hidden in your data? Unlock the whole story with ClickSense through personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards, which you can download for free at click.de slash data stories. That's qlik.de slash data stories. everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. So my name is Moritz Stefana and I'm an independent designer of data visualizations. And this is Enrico Bertini and I am a professor at NYU in New York and I do research in visualization. And together we talk on this podcast about data visualization, data analysis and generally the role data plays in our lives. And usually we get together with a guest we invite on the show to talk about a specific topic. But before we start, we briefly want to mention our Patreon initiative. So this is an initiative to help us go ads free. So if you want to support the show, you can go on patreon.com slash data stories, where you can become a patron of the show. And you can also read in a in the old set of details, why we are doing that, what the show is about, and what is our plan in terms of what we want to do with the support that you are providing us. So, Moritz, how's it going? Good, good, good. Uh, a busy summer here and uh, lots of stuff going on. I just uh, recently launched a new project uh, around the German elections. Yes. And uh, together with my colleagues Christian Lesser and Dominikus Bauer, who I collaborate a lot with, and also the Google News Lab. And together we looked at what people search on Google around the candidates, uh, all the political issues, but also like gossip and internet memes <laughs> and, you know, everything people search. So the elections are in six weeks. And so we um, every day produce like fresh data and have like daily tag clouds or word clouds for the candidates. And uh, also show like three week cards that show the momentum of how the search interest has changed and who gets how much attention. And we also have a long timeline that shows the whole year, basically what the big stories were in terms of search and yeah, how the how everything is building up now to the uh, election. So it's quite exciting. And you can take a look. It's on uh, HTTP. 2q17.de so it's basically 2017 but the with the q it looks like a search icon very smart uh, 2q17.de and it's a german site but i hope even the international visitors will be able to figure out roughly what it's about google translate actually works on the <laughs> site so you, you can get a sense of uh, what the contents <laughs> are yeah it's been a fun project and we'll we'll do more and it's, it's kind of exciting to work with real-time data or like daily data in this case that's very neat uh, it's kind of cool. How about you? What, what have you been up to? Yeah, so uh, interestingly, you, you've been using um, tag clouds in your project. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I you went, went there. there, right? <laughs> Brave. <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> we've been basically doing the same on the research side. So one of my students has been <laughs> working on trying to understand what works and what doesn't work with tag clouds and trying to come up with alternative designs. So that's one of the 
papers yeah. that is going to be published at the next uh, IEEE VIS conference. So I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about this mm -hmm. work. And uh, it's very researchy, but one, one thing, one practical yeah. piece of, of the work that I really like is that we laid out a whole design space of how with the same data you can represent it in many different ways. So I think that's going to be practically mm -hmm. useful to some extent. Yeah, and there's a lot of different ways you can design a, a word cloud, right? And so um, I think that's that's also something we discovered. It's like you can play with the positioning and the sizes and the, yeah. uh, the yeah. opacity or do the terms have boxes <laughs> yeah. or not. And so there is actually quite a design <laughs> space there. And um And I think if you do it right, they can be quite oh, yeah, effective, yeah, right? Absolutely. Or, um, does the research prove me uh, wrong? Yeah, yeah, no. I think yeah. uh, well, <laughs> I don't want to spend the whole episode talking about it. <laughs> Maybe we should organize an episode only on that. But yes, I think it's uh, yeah. Some we some could. of the results yeah. are surprising. Let me let me say that. So if you if you are curious, just uh -huh. <laughs> a teaser. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can find actually the paper on my website. Just go to enrico.bertini.io and you you'll find it there. Cool. And uh, um, just briefly, I want to mention there is another piece of work that we we are publishing that is more on the how to use is on a visualization system to help people look into machine learning models. That's another thing I'm really really excited about. So if you're curious, again, you can just go on my website and take a look. But um, yeah, cool work. I'm I'm really really excited about these these two pieces of work. Um, so I think we can start with our guest today. That's been a kind of longish introduction. So today on the show, we have Chris Wongsu Pazawat from Twitter, and we're going to talk about how people like him are doing data visualization at Twitter. Hey, Chris, welcome on the show. Hi, Enrico and Morris. Hey, Chris. <laughs> So, Chris, can you briefly introduce yourself, maybe talk about what's your background a little bit and uh, what you're currently doing at Twitter? Sure. Um, so in case anybody is still staring at my long last name, <laughs> um, I was born and raised in Bangkok, Thailand. So that's like, like explain the last name part. Um, and 10 years ago, I came to the U.S. for a master's degree at the University of Maryland. Then I took Ben Schneiderman's InfoVis class. Oh, nice. And the next thing I know is I spent five years doing PhD with him and Catherine Persong. <laughs> um, I really learned a lot from them. I mean, it has been a pleasure experience being mentored by both of them. I published a few papers on IEEE with, and like after graduation, I decided that, okay, enough publishing like <laughs> academia for me. Maybe I want to go into the industry. Um, so like, I joined Twitter. And I'm very passionate about data and want to help people make use and understand them. I love visualization because it can reveal hidden patterns in the data. Um, the best moment for me when working on this project is when you are fighting with the data and then suddenly the patterns start to emerge and somehow the world just feels so bright at that time. And I also love that like visualization makes complicated things become easy to understand. And I like to explain things to people and when I can use visual to help me explain like that is really helpful <laughs> um i'm currently a staff data scientist and the tech lead of the analytics tools and service team at twitter we build internal tools which can be anything from dashboard to more complex visual analytics tools as well as public visualization that you can see on interactive.twitter.com 
And I also have a younger brother, Ganit Oham, who is working on Vega Live with Jeff Hair, and people mix us like, all the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I really like your description of, of visualization. I, think, I guess that's m the reason why most of us are in this field, right? This uh, mm -hmm. sense right. of, I don't know, accomplishment and joy when things actually <laughs> start working right, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm, yeah, right. yeah. It's yeah. not talking about the pain before that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's good. It's good pain. So, uh, Chris, we want to talk a little bit about what happens at Twitter, how people do data visualization at Twitter. So, can you describe a little bit what? happens there maybe starting by i don't know how many people work there in terms of how many people do visualization or related related kind of works mm -hmm. at twitter what the focus of these people is so what happens behind the curtains i think that's <laughs> that's mostly what we are curious about sure um so currently we have a full stack team of six um two dedicated database persons um, and the rest of the team are mix of front end engineer backends uh, data scientists and also our product managers uh, we get to do the external work that like you see the fun ones um, out there every once in a while but most of our time are focused on internal work um, the way we see ourselves is we are kind of like a consulting unit and we collaborate with other teams to solve their problems. To give a more specific example, we were with the A-B testing team to define how the A-B test results dashboard should look like because we have hundreds of experiments running at the same time. Each experiment has um, maybe multiple treatment buckets, track hundreds of metrics, um, and then we can also cut the results by country, um, user type, etc. So that's a lot of like information to digest and people are using this to um, decide if we are going to ship anything or not. So it's very important. Or we also work with the advertisement team to look at um, how they are serving the ads so they can debug their algorithm and improve the user experience. And there are like multiple partners um, around the companies that we try to find their problems, that they need data, and we can solve a visualization. Mm -hmm. And how, how do these projects work typically? Like how many people are on the team? What types of people do you have like iterations or do you do basically one uh, a one-shot uh, process and then move on to the next process? How do these typically play out? Yes, so we have um, a mix of both. Um, some projects are kind of larger and longer term so um we may work on it for like half year one year but there are also shorter term projects um that we do a, a one-shot thing and then let's just call it a day mm -hmm. um and most of the time we because the team is kind of full stack so it's not like we just allocate one person to on this and that but there'll be a kind of lead for the projects and most of um the time um, everybody kind of do their part in that project. Mm -hmm. And will you then come on as an individual person or is there like a team of data visualization people working on, on one project? Um, so it's a, it's a team. Mm -hmm. And how many people do you have overall like in, that do similar work as you do, like just to get a sense of the, the size? Um, so right now we have a team of six mm -hmm. um, and two of that is a dedicated database person. And because like most of the time when we build this visualization is like building web apps or um, the front end and back end engineers are like very helpful in doing those works that um, 
if we don't have them, then the visualization people have to do everything um, and we should spend most of the time thinking about the data and how to present them rather than how should I build this API. <laughs> and probably you cannot share like the exact like how the tools look exactly that's that's probably internal mm -hmm. stuff yeah it's a little bit like tricky but can you describe a bit like what the what the design challenges were or what the maybe the unique ideas were that that came up like on a more general level mm -hmm. yeah I, th i think like most of the time the, the process first is like we talk to the potential users of the tool um like okay what you are you trying to get out of this um, data set or the problems you have and how can like we iterate on this the design to to solve it like we will have like multiple kind of weekly meetings and try to do prototypings until we get the idea that both of us are comfortable um, and then we start like working on the implementation um, like the projects that uh, we have shared publicly uh, we published about this in IWS um, a few years ago um, it's about the log events so at Twitter uh, most of the user interaction are log um, we have a naming scheme that is six part um, the client page section component element action for example um, web home uh, home impression it's like a somebody opened the home page on twitter.com mm -hmm. and we have um hundred and hundred of thousand of these events around in the company um, each of them are log and track every day so basically we have maybe hundred thousand of time series mm -hmm. and some events are more important than the others uh, and if we want to make sure that like we take care of all of them and if anything goes suddenly up and down we should be aware of so uh, we build a visualization that can uh, capture the, the overview of all the events um, because the hierarchy of the naming scheme we use an icicle tree um, to aggregate all the events and that like has been used um, since then until now. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's yeah. great. One of the biggest challenges I guess you guys have is how to reduce the data to something that can be <laughs> visualized and it's and it's mm -hmm. manageable and hopefully even interactive, right? So right. How, how does this work? I guess you, you have to go through several, I don't know, I don't know how to call it, compression stages, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. But without losing important important details. Yeah. So I see this as a constant challenge in this kind of projects, right? Right. Yeah. And I think like in the beginning of the project is a lot of trying to figure out what is actually important. Mm -hmm. And um you have to throw anything that is not necessary out. Um otherwise it's impossible to <laughs> show everything in the tool we may start from getting a small sample data set that may have everything and then once we start visualizing then okay maybe this is not needed that is not needed and once the prototype can show proof of concept then all right let's try to scale this and write a production pipeline that produces exact same data yeah mm -hmm. yeah w one thing i'm curious about so when i when we are working in the lab on developing new tools. We have a lot of iterations at the beginning, and I find that mm -hmm. um, 
even though at the beginning we sketch, we try to sketch the user interface, say on a whiteboard, it's only when we actually see it with real data that we realize whether it's going to work or not. I'm wondering if you have mm -hmm. the same, if the same thing happens to you and uh, yeah, how do you deal with that? Yes, yeah, definitely. I, th I think getting the sample data is a very important step because then we can test if our idea on the whiteboard really works or not. And uh, we once we try to plug the data in, then we start to realize that, yeah, okay, maybe I wasn't thinking the right way. We have to shift the direction. Yeah, and I, I have another question related to that. Um, so one thing I'm curious to hear is, um, I guess companies like Twitter... Um, basically can afford having a team of great people like you to build tools that are used internally for important data analysis projects. Um, mm -hmm. But I think a, a question there is always, how do you decide whether, say, existing software can be used to solve a given problem or when it's time to, say, use valuable people like you to create a whole new piece of software? Is there any... Or, or let me let me ask this question in a different way. What what are the limitations of existing software that basically require the development of a whole new application to develop an, an internal to solve an internal problem? Right. So I think like most of the the commercial software because they want to be able to reach a lot of different customers. You have to be very generic and try to support. Um, most of the common use cases. So once you start like going down some path that is very specific and the kind of off the shelf tool cannot um, do that, then that is when um, I think custom work uh, is uh, the solution for you. Um, especially, um, for example, our log events, um, we have the, our whole internal infrastructure for managing um, those. And there are a lot uh, more information in them that we can make use of. And if we use off-the-shelf tool, um, we are throwing um, those away, so not able to access them. So we do a lot of custom projects in here to fully utilize what we have. Sure, sure. Makes sense. Right, but we also use Tableau a lot. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah, yeah. It, is it more like you would use generic tools first and then you realize you hit a wall <laughs> and then you get involved? Mm -hmm. Or is it for some types of projects always clear, okay, I guess we need to code this ourselves? <laughs> like maybe, um, I don't know, networky stuff or flows or... I think I will always like, try to refer them to use the, the generic one first, if possible. Uh -huh. um, I mean, it's not fun to like, okay, let's implement a bar chart again, right? right, right. Um, yeah. So if they can use other tools, then that's great. But then if they hit performance wall or some complex issue, then we can talk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and of course, also you might maybe as an expert have ideas like somebody who's just used to standard software might not have, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So maybe we can also talk about projects that have more, um, say, visibility to the to the public, right? So you've been developing this very popular Game of Thrones uh, visualization mm -hmm. that's more for external consumption, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So how, how, how does it work for these kind of projects that are more for public consumption? Um, so we have a good relationship with the communications team. So these mm -hmm. are the team that um, need to reach out and um, kind of advocate 
stories about Twitters. Um, so sometimes um, they may come with specific requests. Um, like, oh, the eclipse is happening. Like, can we do something? <laughs> Or sometimes yeah. um, they may have like a broader idea. Like, oh, Game of Thrones is about to start a new season. Do you have any ideas? Um, so we kind of jump in. Uh, depends on the availabilities, and sometimes there are technical challenges um, that we kind of wait if it's worth investing or not. Um, but for the Game of Thrones one, um, I. Is one of the most talk about show on Twitter and probably on this planet nowadays. Um, so I, I am also a fan of the show, so I am personally <laughs> interested in doing it. <laughs> um, and uh, at that time, we were like, there are tons of tweets on Twitter about Game of Thrones. It has been five years at that time, and we have tons of data. Uh, The first idea that came to mind: okay, yeah, we can count tweet and do time series, but can we go deeper than that? Right? Um, can we look at the tweets and try to figure out what are the fans actually say about the show? Yeah. And it led me to think: well, okay, when you look at the TV show, what do you care about? You care about the characters, right? So let's focus on the characters and then do the count of the characters, and then okay, that's good. But can we go even deeper than that? The story is not just about one character, but it's how different characters interact. So, if people mention two characters in the same tweet, that usually means that there are something between them. And try to grab those relationships, we end up with a graph, and turns out to be a network um, that we visualize and um, correspond to the actual storylines. So that was pretty fun. <laughs> and you also show the top uh, emoji uh, uh, associated. Oh yes, yeah, that's <laughs> kind of fun. Bit, like, yeah, yeah, I like and that. Part. It's always like uh, fun to after the episode. Right now, we update um, every week and look at oh, what are people thinking about these characters? <laughs> and you see all these like hard emojis or crying face floating yeah. around. <laughs> and there's also like it's a network visualization, so the size is the number of mentions, the strengths are the connections. We have the emoji. Right. But there's also mm -hmm. colors and like different areas marked. Is that is that like a clustering yes. um, method or? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, I run the uh, community detection algorithm on it. Um, ah, okay. And yeah. that's kind of highlight the different arcs of the storylines within each episode very well. It's nice. It, it works really well. I, yeah. I think it's quite surprising because you could think like people mentioning characters together is not that strong of a data source but it, it really mm -hmm. like the actual community structure comes out quite nicely it's uh, yeah, mm -hmm, right it's and it can uh, capture the kind of fan shifted theory or imagination um like the love between Thomas and Brienne of Tarth um that one is kind of like a funny thing on the show and that the uh, fans kind of pick up a lot uh -huh. oh. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's super fascinating to see, say, I guess, thousands or hundreds of thousands of interactions happening in Twitter summarized in these little graphs. And uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know. I'm still surprised after many years to, to, to see how, how beautiful these things are and how meaningful they also are, right? That's mm -hmm. interactions among a lot of people. And it, it's, it's really cool. Mm -hmm. So then I think another uh, type of work that you do internally is also about developing new libraries or 
software for others to use. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. So uh, because we develop a lot of uh, internal tools and after uh, working on multiple projects, you start to see um, the same piece of code or the same type of problems that you ran into again and again. Um, like uh, the two libraries that I open source with Twitter are D3Kit and Labella.js. Um, the first one is like we write a lot of D3 code and we want to make them a reusable component. So in the beginning, it's like this one kind of base file that I copy over and over from projects to projects. Yeah. So anytime I want to write a D3-ish component, I have to kind of extend from this uh, structure. So we decide to let's standardize this a little bit more and figure out, okay, what are the common things um, we need for a D3-based component? Like it should be... Uh, handling resize events. If you resize a window, it can capture those events and has an easy way for you to uh, uh, handle the resize. And then now there are different ways of using D3. You can use SVG and Canvas, but what if you want to use both of them on the same chart? Um, you can like use native JavaScript and once you resize, you have to try to resize both of them. So we abstract all those logics into D3Kit. So you only think about, all right, let's visualize the data, how to encode it, and while it's about how do we synchronize the uh, canvas and SVG that should resize together. And the other project is uh, Labella.js. Um, my dissertation is on uh, event sequence, so I work a lot with timelines. And one of the uh, problems with visualizing items on the timeline is uh, when you try to put labels under them, they often overlap. And I have tried um, from very brute force solutions such as, okay, let's hard code all the pixel off that, that I should place the label to try to find a more clever solutions. And at the end, I'm, I try to use a force directed um, idea that, okay, if the labels know about each other existence and it push each other apart, so they will not overlap. And that became the start of Label.js. Hmm. Yeah, and it looks really good. So it doesn't look messy at all. It's just how a human would lay out the labels. And I think that's, it's often so hard. And I could have used it on the 2Q17 project, <laughs> I realize now. So I was a bit like, no, damn it, we should have used that mm -hmm. one. Yeah, no, it, it, yeah. it looks really great. And does it work with the new like T3 version 4 as well? Um, or is it basically agnostic? Of? Uh, yes, I think it, yeah. it, it works. Um, I think yeah. the uh, library itself is just layout. So it takes like X position and return the position that like it should be. Right. And then you can render it however you want. Yeah. Right. That's a, mm -hmm. a very good design choice. Very good. Yeah, that's nice. Uh, it looks really great. So I hope I can use it sometime in the future. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. And you can find a bug report if you run into anything. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty responsive. I will definitely, definitely do. <laughs> so, yeah. Maybe we can talk a bit about Twitter as a data source. I think it's a super fascinating like one of the most interesting data sources actually out there because it's uh well there's a massive amount of people 
it's text-based, you have like social network data in it, you have conversations, you know, so everything's there, time, trends, everything. So, mm -hmm. And uh, I also did a few projects, like I was mapping, I don't know, communities around a, a conference, for instance, just by looking at, okay, who speaks at the conference and who do these people follow or who are followed, who is followed by those people. And then so suddenly you can sort of map out a whole community right just by looking at twitter mm -hmm. followership or like we did something around the olympics uh, olympic games uh, like what people were tweeting about the games and so on so i think it's super um yeah just a fascinating data source like what, what do you think what are the biggest like the most let's say maybe untapped opportunities or what's most interesting about working with twitter data and maybe what would be a good start if you want to start a project um in this direction sure i think um the uh, data set itself is like very interesting as you mentioned it's like tons of text that people try to compress and uh express in this short chunk so it's uh, very dense and try to be informative at the same time um so like trying to extract the meanings out of those texts is like a lot of challenge in itself i think even sentiment analysis or um, some more NLP approach has to be kind of adjust uh, to adapt to these chart sentences. Um, and even simple tasks like uh, trying to count something is really hard on, on the Twitter data because yeah. the volume that we have, like when you say how many people talk about Game of Thrones, <laughs> I think it's impossible to get like 100% accuracy of the count. Right. Like the only way to do that is to have everybody like read through it. Um, but we try to do our like best guesstimate on that. So it's, it's really challenging and there are like more uh, complicated way, like instead of just of Let's match all the text that has the word Game of Thrones in it. We can use machine learning and try to build models that decide if this tweet is about Game of Thrones or not. Yeah. And that's a lot of like interesting challenge there. Yeah. It's also a challenge, like this is something we ran into in the Olympics project, is like how representative is the data really? Because of course Twitter has a specific like demographics of people using it. And mm -hmm. then what you're of course interested in is what the world thinks or what the US thinks or you know what people think in general mm -hmm. like is, is there a good way to maybe control a bit for like potential imbalances or what, what are the big let's say caveats in terms of not maybe over interpreting what you find mm, right yeah I think the, that's kind of um it's a tough one. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> I love that. And it's the same for any Nobody social knows. media data. You know, it's just to yeah. be clear. It's whenever you use internet data or social media data, you have to think about that, right? Mm -hmm. Right. We should get everyone on Twitter. That way we don't have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but is it something you think about? Like if you, let's say for the game of thrones it's kind of good that people have like proper names. So it's even international in a way, but if you like, analyze data maybe uh, like mm -hmm. health or something like this you know you, you immediately talk mostly about english speaking people probably or definitely yeah, yeah. we we only use english uh, tweets um so we probably like ignore a lot of uh, non-english tweets in the projects and yeah to be able to capture um every languages and to see if people in different part of the world 
um, perceive this differently. I think that would be very interesting to look at too. Yeah, I think that that's a big challenge because in a way you could also argue that who is reading the, the visualization should be just, well, just is a big word here, but just be aware that is a very partial and biased view, right? So I'm mm -hmm. wondering if there, there are two sides of the problem. One is how can you correct or how can you just make sure that the person who is watching this just is aware of the fact that this is biased, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can go both ways. I mean, right. what's interesting is like if you go to your own Twitter analytics tab, do you know that one? Like, I think mm -hmm. either you yes. have to opt yeah. in or everybody has it, but you have your own analytics, like about, for instance, your followership and stuff like this. In there, you mm -hmm. can actually see like, yeah, that's like 80% male <laughs> or, you know, something like, mm -hmm. like mostly <laughs> oh, yeah. white, white dudes. And, uh, but I think that, that's very interesting. And it also compares like how your followership is different to the global, like, or the overall average and stuff like mm -hmm. this. And so I think this is super interesting and maybe just making that clear. Yeah. That, that could help already. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I think maybe we should like add the, not just, uh, saying, okay, data is from Twitter about this hashtag, but like the, uh, what are the users that contribute to that data sets? And so it yeah. will give a better idea of if this is uh, something that is representative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a tricky topic. Yeah. So Chris, if, if say some of our listeners want to develop uh, some visualization or a data analysis project based on Twitter data, what would you suggest? Uh, what would be the, the, the first steps? How do you go about it? I'm not even sure that's the best question for you because you actually have direct access to, to, to Twitter <laughs> data, right? Which most right. people don't have, mm -hmm. but I don't know, maybe you can, you can provide some, some tips. Sure. Yeah. So I'm kind of cheating a bit because I have like direct <laughs> access, but if I were to do it, um, I think the Twitter developer, um, documentation has a lot of, um, information about how to get started, like what are the list of APIs that are available. I think they even have like links to some of the libraries for connecting to the, the API. Um, and uh, maybe Hello.js is one of the libraries that you can use to connect to those APIs. Yeah, it's, that's a good one. I, I made good experiences with Hello.js. So that could be a good start. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh Moritz, I'm just curious. So in your, so the project that you developed in the past based on Twitter data, you just used the, the standard. That's what 1% um, of, of the firehose or, or what? Um, or you had it, it privileged was access different. to. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it, was it was always, always different, different. Yeah. because, um, so the Emoto project that was like five years ago and we had a partner there, um, called DataSift, who is like a reseller for Twitter data. Okay. And we were working with them, but we were also working with the 1% um, firehose. Then for revisit, I used the search API and that can actually work if you authenticate with the Hello.js or other libraries, then you can get for like individual projects, you, you can do enough searches, I would say. It's just a bit difficult to do a lot of searches for a lot of people in parallel, right? Uh -huh. And other, uh, like the ResoNet, I did, um, you can also like let Python scripts run for a few days and do a lot of queries. <laughs> can work too, but it's always a bit different, and you have to sort of find your way around the API every time, in, you know, in a way. Yeah, but once you know how it works, you can do a lot of stuff. Yeah, 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's my my experience. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because Chris, I, I don't know if you are aware of that, but typically what happens in research labs, at least as far as I can tell, is that professors who are working with data, they just ask their students, you you keep you start collecting something and we'll see <laughs> what, what we need to do with that, right? But just yeah, yeah. keep collecting something for a few uh-huh. months and we all have <laughs> patches, right? There are samples of Twitter data scattered around all the uh-huh. <laughs> computer science uh, labs of the world, mm-hmm. right? Right? So, with lots of redundancy, of course. <laughs> but, uh, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even, even I think even in our lab, we have different professors who have probably collecting different patches individually, right? So mm-hmm. it's um, doesn't make sense at all. But that's that's what we do. <laughs> so yeah. Um, Okay, so I wanted to ask you something else, maybe abstracting away a little bit from the technicalities of mm-hmm. building visualization for Twitter or at Twitter. Um, I'm not sure if you can answer this question, but I think mm-hmm. so. In the past, uh, even on the show, we've been discussing a little bit of how high tech companies see the value of of these in general, right? So why do these at all in a big company like like Twitter? So I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of a your perspective being being uh, a, a, a being a Twitter, how do Twitter see value in in visualization? Where does the value come from? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so I think like most time, like whatever technologies the companies decide to invest, like having someone to do it because they see that it can make impact to the business. Right. So um, for visualizations, um, if you can show that it create positive impact for the companies, then they will um, see your importance and then you get more attention and resource. And of course, it will be kind of hard to improve the top level metrics directly. Like I mean, by me visualizing some data, it's not going to make the number of tweets or users just suddenly <laughs> goes up. Mm-hmm. Um, but the work that my team has done, um, it either provide new insights and empower uh, my colleagues with new tools and the new perspective um, that they didn't get before. They can do that task uh, better, faster. And then once they do those things, it actually directly impact the top level metrics. So um, I think that's how we justify the value we create for the company as a visualization team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and how do you know you were successful? Like, is it... <laughs> Through these indirect measures that people you provide tools with suddenly mm-hmm. produce better results, or or can you directly like do you have like a direct way to to measure your impact? Right. So we uh, track their uh, like usage and also testimony of like how they they use the tool. For example, the A/B testing dashboard is used by like half the companies. So we know that like yes half the company is like using this to make decisions about whether we are going to ship a feature mm-hmm. or not. So um, I think that's a clear impact right there. Yeah, yeah. And for smaller tools, like how do you know when, if it works? Um, so we will do like case studies and kind of collect those um, results. Like, okay, what are you, what did you use the tools that we built for you for? Uh-huh. And of course there are some project that's like goes well, um, some that may, um, not create as much impact that we expect to, um, but I think that's the nature of the 
and it will like not sure. everything yeah, will yeah. be hit. Yeah, yeah. If you would know beforehand, then it would be boring. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. But you mostly rely on people reporting like a few months later on you, uh, back to you uh, and saying like, yeah, th that was helpful or this, this helped us figure out that. Um, mm -hmm. Right. And we build like longer term relationship with the team that we support. So once mm -hmm. we start like doing one tool and maybe we expand do a v2 of that like um, adding more features or we see from that usage that oh actually this is another problem that you are having in the workflow that we could have do something for you and then like once you do that it just open a lot of doors for new projects mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so chris we have to wrap it up soon but before we conclude i just want to ask you so if uh, some of our listeners want to do visualization in a, in a great company like Twitter. So do you have any suggestions for them? How do you get to work for Twitter and do amazing visualization work like the one you do? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so of course, the first skills is you have to be able to visualize data. Right? And I'm not talking about being able to write something in D3, but when I talk about visualization, it's more like you can reason why one visual encoding should be chosen over another. You can discuss the pros and cons of visualization design. You can kind of iterate and try to come up with some different visualization if needed for more complex data sets. And a lot of work will be like falling into the category of building visual analytics tools um, rather than coming up with new, very sophisticated new type of visualization. So you need to understand the user-centered design process, you like talk to customer, figuring out their needs and trying to um, develop a solution that actually answer that. And of course, like all I have been talking is about you think you know that what needs to be done, what needs to be built, but you actually need to build it and make it happen. So you need engineering skills. Um, and that will be a great asset for you because if you can imagine all these like nice ideas of how to visualize something, but you cannot actually build it or you only build it in a code that nobody can ever maintain afterwards, then it's going to be hard. And so if you are also a strong uh, implementer, then that like make you uh, kind of complete in yourself. And the more um, skills you have, like if you can also write some backend API to read from database or connect with other services, or if you are uh, um, can learn about MapReduce and use Hadoop to do your data processing, um, then you are less reliable, like you don't have to rely on other people too much in the beginnings and you can start like quickly uh, creating values. And then once people see the value that you're providing with all of this, they may be like, okay, um, we should not let you just spend most of the time on writing Hadoop jobs. You should do visualization. Maybe we'll get someone with um, these other skills to help you so you can produce a lot more output. Nice. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. We have to wrap it up soon, but before we let you go, we should talk about uh, one uh, secret hobby of yours. <laughs> and <laughs> and you, it's, you're so good at it that you actually won a prize doing it. And it's uh, the hobby is crafting terrible data visualizations in your, in your spare time, I guess. Oh, my favorite. A apart from, from your day job. And uh, you won last year, you won a prize for the best worst uh, viz uh, in the best worst viz contest run by visualizing data is that right 
Yes, <laughs> I'm probably the winner of that one. <laughs> yeah, so we have to make a poster uh, out of it. Yeah, it's it's a really pretty bad visualization, and it's it's meticulously crafted. And uh, there's I can only recommend there's a process description on Medium, so you even went to the length of describing the process for uh, building this horrible visualization. <laughs> <laughs> and it lists all all the crimes you have committed. Well, since I spend a lot of time like making it happen, I would better document it as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's a really fun one. It's like it has the most uh, confusing legends and encodings you could possibly think of. It has a link to the data in PDF format, which drives me crazy. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. It has a dinosaur. I, I think nothing is really missing there. Yeah, <laughs> it's mm -hmm. fairly. Yeah, complete. I think like the the inspiration for that one was like when we think about bad visualization, people often think about rainbow color palette, 3D pie chart, and those things, right? But I think that the one that are more dangerous is the one that looks harmless but yeah. you cannot actually interpret anything. And <laughs> I used to like one thread on Stack Overflow that like showed the best code comment ever. And there was one like code comment that it defined true as false. <laughs> so everything is just inwards. And that was like my inspiration for this piece. Like I would just <laughs> encode everything the most opposite way you can do, like encoding zero as the largest circle, for example. That's like... Totally the worst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's horrible, and you yeah you keep discovering new atrocities. It's it's not fun. Yeah, so actually, I would definitely recommend checking it out. <laughs> yeah, so thanks so much for joining us on the show. Uh, super interesting, and I'll definitely take a look at the Labella JS framework and try and use it uh, mm -hmm. in in an upcoming project. Labeling is hard, and this seems to make it easier. Thank you. So thanks for coming, Chris. Yeah. Thanks so much, Chris. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. And if you enjoyed this show, there's a couple of related episodes. So, and uh, we thought we can tell you about them. And you can also check out the links in the blog post, of course. So, the Emoto project I talked about, we had an episode on that with Stefan Thiel. It's number 11. So, it's ages ago. <laughs> so <laughs> if you want to hear a younger version of Enrico and me, um, check out episode 11 on Emoto, uh, the Twitter project. There's also more, right, Enrico? Yeah. So, then we have on episode uh, 54. We have designing exploratory data visualization tools with Mariah Meyer. So if you are curious about how to create this kind of uh, visualization-based applications for data analysis, there is a lot to learn there. Yeah. And then we have on uh, episode 62, we have a whole episode on text visualization. So Twitter data is mostly about text. So if you want to learn more about how to visualize text, that's uh, text visualization, past, present, and future with Chris Collins. And that was a good one too. Yeah. Yeah. And Moritz, last one. Last one. Um, yeah, we had another one. Uh, on more on the professional side of this in industry and in large corporations with Elijah Meeks from Netflix. That's a more recent one, number 95. So I think all of those are definitely worth checking out. So thanks for listening to Data Stories. Yeah, thanks so much and hear you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Are you missing out on meaningful relationships hidden in your data? Unlock the whole story with ClickSense 
through personalized visualizations and dynamic dashboards, which you can download for free at click.de slash datastories. That's qlik.de slash datastories.